This is the Apple Connect Podcast. Hi, Tim. Hi, Rebecca. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am very well myself. I just moved into my new apartment. That's super so exciting. I'm, I'm quite excited about that. Yeah. And uh, I'm supposed to say hi from my mom. Okay. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. All right. So today we want to talk about REST and GraphQL because we both kind of used it um, uh, recently or you use it uh, in your job as well. I use it every day. Yep. Almost every day. All right. <laughs> Me, not so much, but I use REST every day, basically. So yeah, we want to give you a quick overview of REST and GraphQL, like the advantages and disadvantages and going to exchange thoughts and experiences. So let's uh, jump right in. For REST, I think we all know REST, right? If you, if you start developing or if you yeah, want to do anything on the web, basically you, the chances of stumbling across the REST uh, API is qu uh, are quite high. But uh, there are like s some tedious things about REST APIs. They're super inflexible. One of the main things that REST APIs are based on is uh, resources. So we all know this. We want to request a certain set of data and then we send the GET request with a specified URL. And then we receive the data and then we decode the JSON, or usually it's JSON, so we decode the response and pick and choose from the response what Uh, we want to use in our app, which can take quite a lot of time <laughs> to set this up. <laughs> But the good thing is usually the APIs don't change that much or that often. So you don't have to touch that every day. But on the other hand, one of the things that are <laughs> kind of annoying <laughs> about those APIs is that if you want to change something on your user interface or the data yeah. you want to use, you want to have more information or another, another set of data, something like in a search, you want to add like search uh, terms you can use or search categories you can uh, search for, then maybe you have to send another request. Yeah. So I haven't had the experience of, um, so, so you mentioned unflexibility in REST endpoints and um, whenever I use REST in my, in my personal apps or even like in school projects, I never really had access to the API, right? So if um, I always had to make do with what was available. So I guess my question to you is, um, since, since you have engineers um, in the app that you're working with, that own these REST endpoints. What is the process generally like when there are things that are changing? For example, you need more information from your endpoint. Yeah, so in the, the last project I worked on, um, it was like in a smaller startup. So when we needed more information or needed a new endpoint that provided some other set of data or the same data like in a different way for example we just added that endpoint because it was such a small company and in the company i'm working in now the teams are separated since we just basically present the data from them 
they design the API and say what kind of data we're getting. And then we decode the data we're getting and presenting it. So we're not really involved in the API. So we're you're not defining what they should send us, but they define what they send us and we just display it. Since it's an evolving product, um, sometimes the API is not ready when we start implementing uh, the feature. And we usually have some kind of talk where we define what fields we're definitely getting and how this JSON structure basically looks. And then we already start developing the feature, but we also have very common, yeah. tests that we write in terms of that check that the response actually contains the fields we are expecting. And those tests are run by that team. Both of us, both teams see if those tests are failing and the tests are basically our contract between the two teams. Yeah, so this works quite good. I mean, sometimes they fail and then we have to, we have to talk to each other, of course, and say, guys, what happened? Do we need to change something in the app? Or like, is that a bug on your side? Or is that like a, actually a official change uh, that we have to adjust our code? which is one of the disadvantages about REST APIs, right? Because they're always fixed, they're static. It's always like, it's not a dynamic data structure. So if they change something, one field is missing or they rename a field or something like that, then the decoding doesn't work anymore on our side. And then we, Either the app crashes because you don't handle the error, uh, right? Or you don't display the the data you're you're receiving because that's just um, not correct. This is where GraphQL comes in, which you're gonna be talking about in a second. What also sometimes happens is that, or what we changed rather recently, also fits that topic perfectly, basically because. What we had recently, we, we changed it now to one request and one response. But uh, before we had one view that was supposed to show like certain set of, of data, some different, different things. And for all of those different things, we needed to send separate requests. And then we had to decode each uh, response and then put it together on the app to display it in one view. And we change it now to one request, but that's also a thing, right? You have with REST, it can easily happen since it's always a fixed data structure that you uh, underfetch data, meaning that you, with one request, you don't get all the information you want. So you need to send another request to maybe just get one other value. I think it also happens the other way around, right? So like you have like very little information that you want to display and because there's one endpoint for everything let's say like you know you you have a web client that is displaying much more than the mobile client but both are using the same endpoint you fetch more than you actually want to display and i think it's very common actually that there's like query parameters that say like 
extended info. I've seen this in many APIs where you can basically yeah. send a fax so that they don't have to do um, unnecessary work if you don't need this extended info. But when you do, you send that as as a parameter. Does that happen to you often as well that like there's, you know, data that you just throw away that you actually never display on the client or? At the client, I would say not so much, but you usually have that with open APIs like github or i think the weather what is it weather.org or something the api that's always used in in tutorials that's also like a thing about rest since they have multiple clients with different requirements they basically just put all the data <laughs> in their response um, and then the clients pick and choose uh, what data they actually want to use that happens quite often and i also had uh, had that with the GitHub API. I'm currently working on uh, a GitHub app for, for Mac and I used the GitHub REST API for that. And they basically, they, the response you get if you request uh, the notifications is super big because it contains basically all information, everything they've got, they just send it to you. And then you have to like decode it and yeah, yeah, pick and choose what you want to display. And for me, for example, I just want to use four fields or five <laughs> from that whole thing. And yeah, so this is, it's also, yeah, it's quite common and it's also quite error prone, right? Because you, you, you read the JSON and then you like uh, write, write your uh, decoding initializer in Swift and then you have a mistake because you missed the object you want or the fields you want to decode is nested in another object. I think, I think another thing that's very common, um, especially when you talk about decoding, um, and this is not only, you know, because of REST endpoints, but I think it is more error prone there because um, sometimes information, like the documentation isn't super clear on it. Like, you have a field and you it's not marked optional or like sometimes the backend returns null to you sometimes it doesn't return it at all if it doesn't have the info and then depending on what decoder we wrote um it either crashes or it fails to decode the whole thing neither of which is great right you always want to um if it's just a field that you don't even need um you want to fall back and uh, still display the data that you did get back or that you know you were expecting in the first place um but yeah, I think you know REST was a was an evolution based on the SOAP um, you know standard, which I haven't used at all. That uh, was before my time. Um, but I think with anything, you know, there there's always this evolution of like making it better. And now we have GraphQL, right? And we we talked a little bit about um, the the pain points of rest which is like you either don't get enough or you get too much or you don't really know what's going on um and i think those are the things that graphql solves um i don't think that's the reason why graphql was originally um thought of but I, i'm very glad that those things were addressed with building like a new standard um so for, give like a little bit of an intro here for for graphql um as you said, right, REST is like, you know, you sent uh, something to a get endpoint. Um, you can also post or you can, you know, delete if you have like um, things that you want to remove from your, um, from your, you know, backend. Um, and with GraphQL, everything goes over a uh, post request. So 
you you have a static um, URL that is used for all endpoints that is used for all the um, things that are available and then within that body of your request you can send your query or you can also send a mutation mutation is basically like a put or delete or you know something in the something similar in the rest world so you can actually say like oh make a new connection here or delete this user or I don't know modify something on on my data structure um, and then queries um, are really interesting because they they use uh, I mean GraphQL stands for graph uh, query language and it uses this language which is similar to um, you know like a like a SQL language almost right um, where you clearly define what you want to get back from your from your backend so oftentimes backends they use databases right so like they will actually do some SQL request on their end. And with GraphQL, you can specify exactly what you want. So I think a good example, and you mentioned the GitHub API, um, Hint, they also have a GraphQL. <laughs> they also have a GraphQL endpoint that you can use, which is pretty good. <laughs> I know that now. I, when, I, when I started the app, I had no idea that they had a GraphQL <laughs> endpoint. So this is quite funny. Yeah, so if you if you only need four fields, for example, um, you can only request those four fields. So I think you were talking about notifications, right? Um, and one of the main data types of GitHub is a repository, for example, right? So if you if you get a notification for a repository, you don't want to have all the information about that data type. You might only want to know the name of it or the owner or maybe the URL or something like that. So you can clearly define that within the um, within your query. Um, and there's a video that I will link in the show notes where a GitHub engineer is actually talking about like how they use it for their mobile app. Um, I assume they also use what's publicly available, um, probably the alpha version, not the release version. But uh, <laughs> uh, he, he goes over like how you can um, make a GraphQL request from like Swift from from like their um, project and you know get some followers on GitHub or get some users, for example. and um, the example I like to give is uh, with search, you oftentimes have like very little information that you want to display per data type. So let's say you're doing a search for a repository, right? And you type in Swift. So you send that to the backend and you don't want to have all the info for all of the repositories, right? The only thing you care about might be, um, and I'm looking at a screenshot of the GitHub app here, is, uh, you know, the owner, the name of it, um, maybe the like primary language maybe like the number of stars but it's very small information and then when you tap on that search result you make another request and then you get all the information right so maybe then you want to know the number of commits or you want to know the description of this repository or you want to know um i don't know the the release versions or something else like a number of issues for example um so with rest you would make this one request to search and let's say you get 100 requests back but you only tap on one you just thrown away 99 percent of the info that you didn't need right because you never actually tapped through to those um so i think there's is a little bit of a trade-off here right it's like only getting the information that you need just in time but it also means that you may be doing more requests than you would with a rest endpoint right but Oftentimes that's better because you you don't put too much strain on the backend. You don't put too much strain on the on the client to, you know, 
basically people can look at their search results quicker because you're not requesting as much information. Um, and I think I mean, but you could like well, quick question because yeah. when you you said like when you search and then you just request the all repositories right to stay with that example, and then you say okay for for the search results itself, I just want to display the the title or and the owner for example. And then if I click on, uh, on one of those repositories, I want to see just four other fields, still the name and the owner, but also like numbers of commits or whatever. But I could also just have one GraphQL request, right? That also already requests the more detailed uh, information for each repository. And then you can still have one request yeah, totally. but i just wanted to add here like this is a great example where for rest api you would have like the endpoint called like repositories and then you get only a certain set of information about each repository and then you select one and then you make another request getting all the information for that one single repository so you usually also have to make multiple requests because the endpoints are defined like they are and then you have to just work with what you're getting whereas with graphql you're super flexible in terms of defining what yeah. you want to have yeah i think this is an important point right because as you mentioned earlier apis are designed by the backend team and we're both client engineers right so and uh, I think our listeners probably are also very familiar with like client engineering for iOS, for example. And we know that requirements change, right? Like one day you only want to display the name of the repository in the search. And then the other day you're like, oh, why can't we have the image here? Or why can't we have this information, right? And with GraphQL, that's super easy because like the endpoint doesn't change. It's the client who decides what information is actually fetched, right? The, the, the backend will tell us, okay, this is all the fields that are available for a repository, which includes, you know, the image URL or includes other information that we don't care about in that particular screen. But once we do, we can simply add it. We don't have to go through another team. We don't have to have a planning meeting about how we restructure this endpoint or how we, you know, make decisions. Um, we can do this on the client side and very easily add this new functionality. Yeah, or especially in smaller teams, like in my last project with a small startup where we didn't have a backend team that we could just say to, yeah, we need another endpoint, right? We needed to write that endpoint. But this requires that all of your team members are actually able to write that endpoint in that case it was php and i couldn't <laughs> I, at one point i was like managing changing or adapting the api but i couldn't write a whole new endpoint so we had one or two engineers who were able to do this so all of the work for adapting the api was on their shoulders and if they didn't get around to do it, the whole feature waited until until they did, right? So that's also yeah. another aspect that you don't have to have more knowledge than you actually need to stay in iOS. And that's in our case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned resources, for example, and uh, 
adding a new endpoint in REST doesn't only mean adding the new endpoint, right? You also need to communicate this. You need some documentation. You need like to update your example response. You need to update like what fields are available, etc. And that can get really tedious. And as a new member of the team, you, you may not know where all this documentation lives or you don't know who the person to ask to. Maybe it's outdated. That always happens. It's really bad. And GraphQL solves that with the schema. So basically what this is is as a client, you get the whole description of the API back with comments from the backend engineer. So like just as we do in our Swift code, you know, if you have a property, um, you can add documentation to it. And that will then be displayed throughout the whole code base. And similar with the with the GraphQL um, backend here, like if they have a field, let's say, I don't know, stay with the repository has something called uh, stargazers you can you know have a comment there saying like hey these are the github users that start this repository because maybe somebody who's unfamiliar with the product doesn't know what that is um, and this can be fetched by the clients to validate their requests or validate the queries but it can also be used to to build this to build these queries and there's a lot of um apps out there that, that use this schema and um, help you build your requests with it. And uh, it's a perfect place because you can, you know, step through each of the each of the queries and see, okay, what is this returning? What does this type look like? What are the fields on this type? What are the subfields? And, you know, as the name says, GraphQL is very, um, very circular in a way. So like, let's say you have a user that has followers and the followers are again users who also have followers and you can basically go super deep or if you look at like a social graph um you can also close the loop mm. right maybe like one of your followers followers follows you mm. and then you have this like circular reference so that is kind of like how the structure of graphql also looks like and uh we talked already about like the benefits of um for the clients to request exactly what they want and there's also another big benefit for uh, the backend as well. So, for example, repositories have contributors and those are users, right? So the repositories are probably stored in a table and then the users are stored in another table. But if you don't care about the actual contributor, right, you don't care about their names, you don't care about like their avatars and all that stuff, you might only care about the total number, then you can only request the total number of that list. And the ideally, they wouldn't have to make on the back end, they wouldn't have to make a request to this user table, right? They, they can leave that untouched and that will help you scale because you only request and you only get what you actually need and there's no like unnecessary work being done, which with REST, you have to make trade-offs, right? We talked about this, like either you give it and then one user, one client, they, um, they're missing this information. So you either make a new endpoint that they can use or you add to the existing endpoint or it's kind of hard to see like, you know, where this information actually goes um, and stuff like that. And it's super easy to analyze, right? Like to analyze what yeah. kind of data is requested by each client and then you can find fields that are never requested by anyone right and then you can just deprecate that for example yeah. or if you have one certain set of information that is requested by all clients all the time you can also like approve the performance based on that information which you don't have with rest because you just just send everything and then the client uh, use what they get yeah 
Yeah, deprecating is a good point, right? Like on a REST endpoint, you might have a new version or you might be able to tell your team about this or you have to send out emails to your customers. But with the schema approach, you you have that as part of the documentation, you have this as part of the field, right? Um, so the clients know immediately that something is deprecated and hopefully you have a replacement so that clients can start migrating to that and then you can actually remove that field at some point. So it's, it's a little bit more or it's less tedious uh, when it comes to communication. It's like it's very clearly defined. Yeah, for sure. Like, and what would you say, um, since you use both, how is the learning curve for using GraphQL? Because I think or most of us are so used to REST that GraphQL seems super abstract when someone explains it to you. But as soon as you read one article or something, it's super straightforward, actually. And even the syntax is easier to understand uh, what you said with query and what was the... The mutation. Mutation, right? Yeah. Even the yeah, syntax makes more clear what, you're, uh, what you want to do. Whereas get and post, I mean, get, okay, and post, yes, <laughs> also makes sense. But <laughs> I think for, for someone starting out, GraphQL is actually easier to understand. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so first time I used GraphQL was in uh, my senior project. And most of the APIs that we used for that was REST-based. And that's what we were used to you know, throughout our college career. And it really didn't click with me. <laughs> I, I was so confused about them saying like, oh, you can decide whatever you want to get. And I was like, that's not how that works, right? Like, so, and back then I, we used URL sessions for pretty much anything, which is nice for, for REST endpoints because, you know, you define your URL, you define your parameters, you define your headers and you're good to go, right? You get some JSON back. And then with uh, GraphQL, I kind of knew how to construct a post request and I wrote out this body basically just as like a multi-line string somewhere in my Swift code. And it was super confusing because there was no, like we talked about this type checking, right? But like we didn't ingest the schema. We I didn't even know that was a thing back then. And it, it was like, let's hope this works, fingers crossed sort of thing, right? And I don't think that's the best approach to, to GraphQL. This works really well with REST because like, you know, you probably have some documentation somewhere and you have some certainty that, you know, this endpoint, how you constructed it is giving you back the data that you expect. And as you said, you know, you write a test for it. And if the test fails, you can go and investigate. Of course, you can write a test for GraphQL as well, but why don't you check it before you send it, right? And this is where a tool called Apollo comes in. So Apollo is uh, an open source organization. Um, they have SDKs for all sorts of clients, including iOS. And what they do is... Mm -hmm. They basically ingest the GraphQL query file. Um, so you can write it in a completely different file. You, you don't have to do a multi-line string somewhere in your Swift code. And based on that file, they will then generate your, your Swift code, your models. So that means before you even make a request, you can already know what your what your response will look like. So let's say you have, you know, your repository again, and you write your query with your, you know, repository name, repository owner, and the number of stargazers, for example, Apollo will take this and say, okay, the repository name is a string, the stargazer count is a is an integer, 
and then the owner is also a string. And looking at the schema, Apollo can tell if these are optional types or if they will always be returned, um, which makes it really clear to you know to the client if we need default values or if we want to fail when this like i wouldn't fail if the stargazer account isn't there but i would probably fail if the owner isn't available mm -hmm. right because then how can you identify the identify the repo for example so that makes it really nice and as i said right they generate all this stuff for you so when you then actually make the request so apollo for example will will name your query and you can say okay this is my yeah. repository search query and you pass in the parameters that it's needed from the client maybe even from a search field from the user and then you get this response back, which are already Swift types, right? They, they are already strongly typed. They already tell you exactly what they are. And then we oftentimes pipe these into our own models that we have client side. So I think this is a you know thing that you can decide for, you, for yourself if you want to use straight what comes from the network. Oftentimes that's not a good idea because those things mm -hmm. can change and you don't want to be re reliable um, on whatever the network model looks like. So we oftentimes pipe it into like we have an initializer from our like local model that takes a network model and then if anything changes in the schema that is the one place that fails right we don't have to go through the whole code base and change everything we just change this initializer um, if i don't know the field name changed or i don't know the type changed or something like that we can just do that in one place instead yeah. of like everywhere in the code base um, which is really nice yeah, so you have that like single source of truth, which is always a good thing to have. Hundred <laughs> percent, <usually>. yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was just wondering, as you explained how the schema works, how do you handle authentication things? Where in REST you would like just define the header, so you do that yeah. as well, right? It's the same thing in GraphQL. Whatever you were using in your REST API, um, I mean, again, depends on your backend team, right? But like. You, you have a header and you send your tokens or you send your authorization um, and that basically authorizes you for the whole API, yeah, yeah. right? And then you can, you can write your queries and you can ingest your schema. Oftentimes the schema will require authorization as well, especially if it's like private APIs and such. So does Apollo also handle the, the request itself or how does that work? Yeah, they have, I think they have something called Apollo client, which um, takes the, the request as a strong type. And then they, here's where it gets a little bit weird or not weird, but in our code base, we use um, an open source library called Tomorrowland, which, you know, works with promises and stuff like that. So I believe we have a wrapper around the Apollo client to use our own library, mm -hmm. our own open source library to return a promise. But I believe they also have support for Combine at this point. So, you know, the client can also return you a future. And then based on that, you can do more, you know, you can handle errors, mm -hmm. you can, you know, sync the value, you can map them to some other value and uh, you can handle that then, which makes it really nice and, and clean. Um, I think that's another conversation to be had, but I, I believe you can also use uh, completion handlers with Apollo client if you're not ready for iOS 13 and above yet. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Like, because I, w I was thinking about, okay, that you have Apollo and then you have Allobo Fire and like, <laughs> where, does it, <laughs> where does it stop with? <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> super large <laughs> libraries. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I feel like for REST these days, I mean, yeah, of course, Alamo Fire and uh, those networking libraries, they they do a lot for you. In my personal apps, it's very overkill. I just have a wrapper around URL session and, you know, can, can make simple posts and get requests and stuff like that. Uh, with GraphQL, you know, you, you could do that as well. But I think Apollo offers so much more than just the networking aspect of it because you get that, like, auto-generating of models, you get the, you know, ingestion of the GraphQL files and all these other things, which make it so much more appealing than just the standard networking library. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And it's, it's super well-maintained, right, as well? Yeah, uh, it has a good team behind it. It's fairly new, I would say. At least I haven't heard about it two years ago, um, but they maybe may have been around for longer than that. Um, and they're doing a lot of stuff too. Like they, um, they're continuously improving it. And uh, as somebody who uses it every day, I can definitely vouch for them and say like, yes, this is, this is a well-maintained uh, project and has good people behind them. Okay, that's that's also always important. Like when when you maybe think about cha changing from REST to to GraphQL, and that's also something I'm I'm wondering, or maybe you you know this or, or can say something about this does it like take a long time if a company would decide i mean depending on the size of the company and all of those things of course if the company decides like okay we want to use graphql now because our app is basically the only client or we want to have an open api which we want to make super accessible for all sorts of clients with all sorts of requirements. What would you say, like, is it, I mean, of course, something, a decision that has to be made mindfully, but like, would you, would you say it's super, super hard to use GraphQL or go from REST to, to GraphQL? No, I wouldn't say it's super hard. Um, I think it's with, you know, any decision to adopt new technologies, you know, they're, There needs to be buy-in from multiple sources. And then, you know, I think it's it's always good to have a gradual effort. I actually don't know when we started using GraphQL in our app, but I do know that we still have some REST endpoints. Like to this day, we, we still are converting. So probably has been like two or three years at this point. And the hard thing, I guess, is that the REST endpoint will almost certainly look different than what the GraphQL endpoint looks like. And I'm not a back-end engineer, but it's different. Uh, the the way you do parsing from your databases or the way you mm -hmm. like, you know, ingest and export data is different, right? So we've found many subtle differences where like, you know, a field was available in REST and it's not available at all in GraphQL anymore. Or um, the field is available, but it now has bugs because, you know, with any refactor, with any, you know, conversion there there can always be issues like that so it really has to be an ongoing effort but i guess what i wanted to say around like you know graphql versus rest um from like a high level i think graphql fits our modern tech stacks a lot better i think there's a lot of you know social media apps that are really like graph based um with their data structures that fit this model much better it obviously has some advantages over the old API. So if you're building a new API, as you were saying, right? Like if you're a company that wants to build a new open API, I don't think there is 
there's much holding you back with going with GraphQL if you're starting from scratch, for example. Um, I think it will be a few years until it will be like widely adopted by all companies or all clients out there. But I believe in, you know, five or yeah. 10 years, uh, we can have the conversation about GraphQL versus the next thing sort of thing, right? Similar how, you know, mm -hmm. people talked about REST versus SOAP back in the day. Um, yeah, there yeah. will always be always be something new or there will always be, you know, the, the next thing. And I believe for this one, GraphQL is the next thing and it's, it's here to stay for a while because it has clear advantages over the old implementation. Yeah, that's the thing. When REST came around, it solved a certain set of problems. And for that time, it was a good solution, right? But now, like, everything evolves. So now GraphQL has the potential to become the new standard. And then, of course, since GraphQL isn't perfect as well, there will be some other thing uh, that fits the requirements Indeed, of that yeah. time uh, better. Okay, cool. Um, is there anything you want to add to in, in regards to GraphQL? Something I didn't ask. Yeah, I have this, uh, I think I mentioned it in a previous episode, but I have this new app which helps client developers, uh, you know, use GraphQL. Um, you might know Postman, which a lot of us use for, you know, testing out our, uh, our REST APIs yeah. and uh, endpoints and aptly. I named my app Graphman, which allows you to, to write queries and mutations uh, against your APIs um, and test those out in a in a playground environment. Um, this is very big with the GraphQL community. There, you know, almost every API has um, like an online hosted instance of a playground where you can you know, go to a website and mm -hmm. try it out. I think even in the REST days, there were often websites that had like a little playground integrated into their documentation. Um, and this is an app that you know runs natively. I build it with SwiftUI mostly. Some elements in there um, have had to be nice. backported. Uh, but yeah, uh, it was something that I was looking for. You know, as so often we solve our own problems as developers. Yeah. And uh, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it's available now in the Mac App Store, and uh, people can can go ahead and uh, purchase that from there. Yeah, that's super super cool. And I think not even if you use it. For like for for your job for example or something like that but if you just want to give it a go have a play around um, you can you can use the app so it's super cool that you built that and provided that for us so i guess the the beta test was <laughs> was successful yeah and a few people try it out and uh yeah glad to have it on the store nice. now super cool all right, to wrap the main topic uh, up, we will put, as Tim already said, some, some links to different videos or articles or Tim's app uh, in the show notes so you can get a deeper look into GraphQL and REST and what are the differences. So to continue with our tradition of a random question at the end of each episode, you had an interesting question this time. <laughs> I will uh, ask it and um, you, <laughs> you, have to, you have to answer first. So have you installed Big Sur already? Yeah, so a little background to why I put that question in there is because uh, I believe um, 12... Xcode 12.5 is in beta right now and it requires Big Sur. So I feel like a lot of 
a lot of iOS developers will have to upgrade once that launches publicly. So I, I took the plunge on my on my personal machine and I installed it. Yeah, I, I think new iOS or new you know software updates are always exciting, but I had it on an external drive with the beta for like months at this point, and I was using it during the summer to try it out and uh, to be able to run the. Uh, new Xcode with all the bells and whistles on it, and uh, also do some development for Big Sur. So I've installed it now, and uh, uh, the the visual interfaces are not as jarring anymore after many months of usage. But I wouldn't say it's as bad as Catalina, but it still has some rough edges. I after Catalina, I really, really wished that they would focus on like fixing all the bugs. And like actually having a slow year and then they completely surprised it with like we changed everything and there's a lot of things that don't properly work anymore like i think other podcasts have all reported and i've run into this myself as well is like spotlight will just stop working silently without any error messages and you type in looking for an app and there's no results whatsoever um same goes for mail which you know the search sometimes just stops working there's little visual things that are like are different and not ultimately better um like the menu bar i have this dynamic wallpaper which is the default wallpaper but sometimes it just you know gets unreadable at a certain point in time because the text is either too light or too dark or something but yeah little small things it it's not like i completely hate it but it's uh it's rough to say the least (laughs) What about you, though? The thing is, for me personally, I, I'm usually... I mean, some would call this reckless. I would say I'm brave uh, yeah. and believe <laughs> believe in, in, in Apple in that sense because I usually don't wait too long to install the new, the new OS. Like, usually... This time I waited the longest, I would say. I, usually I um, wait maybe a week or something, uh, mainly because I just need the time to make a backup and then download all of those things which takes a lot of time so if you're working you can't really do this so you have to wait like a week and this time I waited maybe four weeks or something and then I was like okay enough it can't be that bad (laughs) and I installed it and I would say mainly it works good for me despite like the problems we had when we started to record that episode where I desperately tried to change the <laughs> the audio source and for some reason it didn't work on uh, on my Mac, which is weird. And I, I haven't experienced that before, but I think I haven't used FaceTime <laughs> uh, on my Mac since I installed Big Sur. Uh, one like there, like for me, there were like smaller things I noticed. Like for example, I haven't noticed that Spotlight crashes, but for me, my work computer, it crashed quite a bunch of times in the last two months, I would say. I'm not sure what's happening. <laughs> I'm running like, or I'm, I'm, like I'm putting a lot of pressure on it. I have to say, like I'm running Xcode and the simulator and IntelliJ and Android Studio all at the same time. And then I'm in a Teams call as well. So <laughs> it's a lot of things I'm doing at the same time. And then it just crashes. And I haven't had that before with mm. the old macOSs. What I found quite quite confusing is I had to find the do not disturb and the how to change uh, to, to night shift. 
I had actually, I had to Google where yeah. it is on Big Sur. It's not a good sign in terms of usability <laughs> if you have to Google something. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, as you said, like by now I'm kind of gotten used to the whole design changes, even though the icons still, still not a fan of the icons. Um, I kind of like the, the round edges around most things, which looks quite nice. But yeah, like one thing that is super annoying um, is in the reminders app that still isn't fixed. If you want to, I mean, I'm not sure if you know this, but if you write a mm -hmm. new reminder and then you can like add time at the time and then you have like can pre-select like nine, 12, three and six or something like that. But for me, every time I click <laughs> six o'clock, it selects three o'clock. Yeah. every time and I'm <laughs> super annoying and like you can also like if you're still not in the detail view of the reminder but still in the overview then you can also just add the time by yourself but this doesn't work like I type in the time and then I hit a return and then it just changes to six or three or whatever so I'm not sure what's what's going on there maybe I'm not using it right but they're like smaller smaller things that are weird and buggy and I would say like after three months at least it's out now you I would mm. guess that they, or I expect that they fix those those smaller smaller things um, because I can't okay. be the only one who, <laughs> who's struggling with setting yeah. times for reminders Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, like, you know, braveness um, sort of thing. And I think it totally plays into not having enough time anymore or being time constrained. I would, like, put betas on my personal device because I wouldn't care. But I, I really don't know if it's just perception that they have gotten so much worse or if it um, is that we're just more relied, like, that we rely more on our devices. Um, I mm -hmm. often run the betas on test devices and on external um, hardware and stuff like that. And whenever something happens, I reboot or it's also like a clean install or, you know, an install yeah. on something that doesn't have a lot of data. Um, you know, the test device I don't use daily for anything, really. I just use it to run my apps. Um, and then yeah, when sure. I run the external um, partition, then I just you know, click around in Xcode and my, um, you know, use Git or whatever. But as soon as I record a podcast, for example, I would switch back to my to my other um, partition or if I, you know, want to log into Like, I generally don't log into iCloud on beta devices, for example, which means a whole mm -hmm. bunch of stuff, just like reminders I don't use or, you know, other mm -hmm. things I, I don't even have access to. Um, so it's I guess it's not like the best way to really test out if something is working. Because oftentimes I'm like, ah, oh, the beta was okay. <laughs> mm. And then I run into all these issues uh, when I actually yeah. install it with my data and with my, um, on my like actual device. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that is, that's true. Like for, but for me, like for my work, Mac, um, since I changed companies, I, um, they ordered a new MacBook for me. So that already came with Big Sur, of course. So I didn't really have the choice. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> I <laughs> I have to work with with what I've got. But I also noticed, or that's a question I asked myself as well. Like, did they actually get worse, or what, or 
that if so why um but because i also noticed some bugs on ios 14 which are super weird or like seem unnecessary basically right so i think it's a, it's actually the time or that you're that you're right there because i guess those those bugs if you have the time to properly test it or if you're not under that pressure in terms of yeah it, it kind of works so it's it's good enough right and then you have to ship it so i'm kind of missing the the the, the quality the quality there because i would say like i i happily wait <laughs> for another two months <laughs> but um i i expect that the the small things the the, the daily things you're using work as before at least they don't have to be better um, but they have to work as as they have before <laughs> like especially like spotlight or reminders yeah. or something like that that you actually use Agreed. every day and if that has a bug it's super super annoying and you get angry yeah. <laughs> quite quite fast don't want to get angry <laughs> all right that was it it was super interesting to talk about graphql because for you to to talk a little bit about using it in production and to to share your your experience with it i think it's super interesting awesome well thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll see you again next month see you